This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too. Welcome to HITS radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today I have on the show a popular guest here, uh, Cameron Ford's on again. Cameron and I did a three-part series on using uh, markers for detection dogs, and that ended up uh, prompting some emails and some phone calls and some questions from some of my friends asking more about, you know, where this come from and, you know, once they uh, open their mind to it, uh, the people I talked to were like, geez, why didn't we do this all along? I think the answer quite simply is that, like any uh, profession, we're evolving right now. So in my opinion, uh, you know, you're, you should always be moving forward. So uh, there's a lot of uh, science that's going into some of the thought process. And I think in the years past, we've always uh, uh, talked about science. And I think sometimes, myself included, we've been a little bit guilty about maybe using uh, science and paying at lip service, but not really uh, getting uh, the science and understanding it, And other than maybe dog psychology. But now there's a lot of uh, different things that are going into the cognition end of, of how a dog learns and how we can train a dog's uh, using their, their cognition. And Cameron, uh, more than anybody I know, is in the middle of all of this as far as being in our profession, training police dogs, and also uh, working with the scientists that are that are researching you know, dog cognition and stuff. So I wanted to bring back today and just basically, um, this isn't a science show by any means, but this is a show about you know what are the trends right now going on in, in detection dog training and where, where might we go using some of this science and all the purpose of this is is simply to make you know your dog better so it's not to say that if you don't use this or if uh, if you train a certain way and you're you're not interested in incorporating this i'm not saying it's the wrong way we've been finding dope and and contraband and bombs or whatever uh for years and years and we're very good at it as a profession but if we can keep getting better and and uh, keep getting the dogs better, keep getting the dogs sharper, maybe make it more efficient in our training, and also stay one step ahead against uh, the attorneys who want to go against us, especially on the drug side. So if we understand the science better than they do, and then they come into the courtroom and want to testify against us, you know, having a good working knowledge of not just understanding it, but understanding it and explaining how you're using it or why you're not using it. Uh, but it, it's it's important to to understand all the different trends going on. And in uh, my time as a, as a handler, um, and I haven't seen uh, this much emphasis on different um, science projects going on on the detection side before. So with that, let me introduce uh, Cameron. Most of you know him, but uh, how are you doing today, Cameron? I'm doing good. And you brought up a really good point, which is we are definitely what I would call in a renaissance period in a way with the detection dog world, with all those things you brought up, the science coming into it, the not only just the cognition, how dogs learn, but also the chemistry of odor, how odor is interpreted, uh, what happens when we place odors together and things like that. So yeah, we are definitely in a uh, really cool point in time right now when it comes to how science affects detection dogs and some of the stuff that we used to believe now can be you know either validated or challenged. And, and let me, I'll just throw this out here right at the very beginning. 
I watch on, yeah, I know you do some pretty lively discussions on your Facebook page, which I, I direct people to, and I'll put a link there in the show notes to your Facebook page because you get some good discussions. So I'll say right off the bat that if there's, you know, we always have some skeptics or even naysayers. Um, if, if somebody listens to some of what we're talking about and they say, you know, my dog finds, you know, whatever that the dog's trained to, he finds it just fine. Certainly he does. Uh, th- this is simply a way to uh, maybe look at, can we get better? Can we get more efficient? Can we open up some avenues of, of dog training that we didn't think of before, you know, once we understand how dogs train? So this isn't uh, change this way because the way you're doing it is wrong. It's simply, you know, let's look at what's what's going. So if presented that to you, if, if I said out of all the stuff we're looking at, Cameron, what what's the most um, probably exciting thing that you've seen in the last couple of years coming out of the research people definitely cognition with the fact of how much dogs pay attention to us and how much they take in in that environment while they're learning so many things that we don't even know they're paying attention to they clearly pay attention to so you have to uh, be very aware that in your protocol training your beginning your imprinting training you are out of that equation as much as possible. So that way it ensures the dog really is learning what it's learning and it does not have a whole lot of information coming from you. It's really getting the information from the environment because we all know at the end of the day, when we don't know the answer, what real help are we to that dog? We aren't. So with that said, we want to have a system in place, a methodology where the dog is actually learning from the environment, making inferences, problem solving and knowing or discovering the right answer through basically training situations that sure. we set up, you know, right. The, the, the beginning, it's only so sure. many answers to be correct. So success is found pretty fast, but, uh, so let right. me, let me, let me just cut in real quick here. Uh, so we're talking about t- cognition and I know, I know this story cause I know you so well, but for people who don't know you, um, take a look, quick step back and just talk about how did you get interested in this? <laughs> Tell me, you know, the story about meeting the Duke people and, and uh, what what got your what tripped your trigger to get going? Yeah, I was watching Nat Geo Wild one afternoon, and I saw these little this show called uh, I think if I remember it right, uh, is your dog a genius? And in that, I saw Doctor Brian Hare uh, doing these various brain games with uh, people and their pets, and it was so telling. So many of the things that we see as detection dog handlers where the dog reads us for information was actually part of these tests that he would do with people. So by seeing that, I said to myself, well, this guy is onto something. I need to reach out to him and see if I can gain any, any, any information that would be helpful for us on the uh, working dog side of it. So long story short, sent him an email and luckily enough, he replied back to me within a day or so. And we've been working together ever since, which was, that was back in 2015. So um, we've been, you know, pushing this um, research through the first initially military and I've pushed it into the law enforcement side of things. Step one was, uh, can we use these tests to help predict or find a dog that is suited for, you know, law enforcement or military work? And what I can say hands down is during the research I was a part of, we increased our selection tests or our selection test uh, success increased it from I was at 46% and we went up to 78% uh, dogs that were selected made it through. 
And with that, my training time reduced by 30%. So it used to take me, let's say, 10 weeks. I was getting done in seven because these dogs, I used to always laugh, and me and you can make the joke about it too. Um, We used to always want that dumb dog, right? We were like, give me the dumb dog. You know, those are much easier to deal with. The smart dogs are a problem. As I found out, I didn't really want that dumb dog. I wanted that smart dog because the smart dog, when you change things or you change things in training, they're able to figure it out faster, which means they get success, which means they get reward quicker. So now I look for just doing all I do is I still do all the same tests I did before, except now I add the series of 25 minutes of brain games. And these brain games are very telling to me as far as how mentally flexible are these dogs and how good is their memory? So, and why don't you uh, take a quick second, just kind of explain, uh, you know, the other, the other dog people that went to do to, to start this brain game process and kind of how that all evolved too. Um, the, the other ones that have been, I mean, Dr. Hare in uh, the yeah. first group, the CCI were, dog people yeah, I was to say the them. CCI dogs uh, were the first group that really worked in depth with him. Uh, and their program has changed significantly due to the, uh, the brain games, if you want to call them that, uh, sure. to help them select better dogs. Now they are going down as far as puppies that are only weeks old and seeing if there's anything predictable uh, based on a variation of the brain games for puppies that can tell them, hey, this puppy might be better suited for this work uh, than, let's say, a, a litter mate is. And sure. we're about ready and, to do the same thing on our end, too. And in general, um, if you don't know much about CNI dogs, the the for anybody who's listening, uh, they the CNI dog uh, that's perfect for them is exactly the dog that we don't want. So yeah. the tests are the same, just we're looking for different results. But they're very, um, I think they line up very closely. They're looking for dogs that are so in tune with the handler that they really don't do anything without watching the handler. Correct. And we want that independent dog. So. Whatever the reason for doing the test, as long as you know how to interpret the results, it'll help you between the two dogs what you're getting. So I think it. Uh, I've heard some remarkable success from the CNI dog people just by doing again, like you said, a, a few extra cognition games. Yeah, with, the, with their potential dogs. Some of these tests, all I did was just reverse what they looked at. You know, so like you said, one of the one of the tests they had was they wanted to see how long the dog would maintain eye contact with you to basically signal they needed help. I wanted the opposite. So all we did was just change the timeline of what I was sure. timing versus what they had timed in the past. And you know the test was the same. I just reversed what I was uh, uh, collecting data on. So in, 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 in the next show when we do this, we're, we'll go into you know kind of describing step-by-step some of these, these tests. So I don't want the listeners right. be hanging here. This show is more of an overview just to talk about what's going mm-hmm. on, but we will on the next time uh, we'll, we'll we'll go in depth about explaining these tests. I've seen them; um, they're so surprisingly simple. I would encourage people yeah. uh, to kind of reach out, reach out to Cameron. He's got some good videos. He can start start showing you if you're if you're interested right away. We can uh, get you in touch with Cameron, and he'll start showing you what they're doing. But we'll also discuss it in, an, in another episode. But in the end, once uh, you got in touch with Brian Hare, then. You added in mm-hmm. 25 minutes, you start seeing some extra um, tests, and with that, you got some better success. So after that relationship was established, tell me how that went. I think he came out and saw you, or some of the people came out and mm-hmm. saw you when you were in San Diego. Yeah, they they came out and visited, and and uh, you know we kind of collaborated back and forth of what our goals were and things like that. The next step was I got invited out to Duke, where I was then taught these tests. 
And after that, I started doing data. And then, of course, uh, collaborated more with Dr. Hare and come to find out, thanks to him, um, I was blown away or surprised or honored by this. I don't know which word you want to call it. Probably all three for me, how I felt. But turns out I'm the only person not from academia that was doing cognition testing on, on animals. Uh, just because cognition in itself, as far as research goes, is fairly new. It's only been kind of since the 70s. And really only more recently did it get, you know, legwork with dogs. So um, like we said, we're in a new new phase here. And, and the things that we're learning, uh, not only on that part that I've been doing with how to select a better dog, but it also changed how we train dogs, especially on the detection side of things, that kind of pushes us down a road of best practices. And where does where does this, when we're talking about cognition, where does this fall in line with, I mean, we've had dog uh, animal behaviorists that are involved in our profession. You know, Scott Clapback for, comes off the top of my mind that mm-hmm. several, I mean, there's a lot of them that are, you know, doctorates in that that are also yeah. heavily involved in police dog training. So can you differentiate a little bit between traditional um, animal behaviorists and what we're doing now? Yeah, so... Um, Animal behaviorists have done a lot of work where they've studied how dogs learn, and they've used you know different methodologies, classical conditioning, opera conditioning, things like that. And there's a whole realm of research that went down those roads that uh, that came to that. Well, if I had my fingers up right now, that'd be I'd be showing you about an inch in height. Sure. And that was a the operant class conditioning is about that much in the cognition world. It's a small part. Cognition is, there's some really cool things you can go online if you want to, people want to search on YouTube uh, as far as animal cognition. There's where crows can make an inference. They realize that they move rocks to a certain area. They can push up their seed that they want to get to. They can also figure out what tube has is connected to another one by dropping rocks into it. Little things like this that they've learned to uh, use to help them be successful in obtaining uh, in this case, food. There's another one that I use all the time in my classes where uh, Dr. Hare used it last year at HITS, um, where there's a clear tube affixed to the monkey's cage, the bar in the cage. And he'll ask the question, okay, in that clear tube at the bottom of the tube is a peanut. How does this peanut or how does the monkey get the peanut out of the tube? And it can't rip off the tube. It can't do anything. It can only It only has what it has in the cage, which is in the photo, you always see straw and some other things. And of course, the average reader people are saying, oh, it's maybe they reach down with a straw. They do something like that, and that's actually not it. Ironically, within maybe seconds, the monkey goes out of the frame, comes back into the frame, and spits water in the tube. And it does it repeatedly until the peanut floats to the top and it can get it out. So that is, that is cognition. Sure. That is the animal's ability to make an inference, take something it knows or tries something and figures out what works and what leads to success. So in, in classical conditioning, uh, or I shouldn't, I don't mean classical conditioning. I mean, I meant to more refer to it as, uh, you know, traditional animal behavior type of, mm-hmm. uh, education. That was the found, uh, base work for what's going on now. So it, it all we're doing is, is moving a lot of that stuff forward using a little bit different, uh, thought process. Is that kind of correct? Yeah. It, the BF Skinner and Pavlov uh-huh. and all the guys, uh, and I'm la- na- not sure. naming all of them because yeah. there's, there's quite a few, but have all kind of laid the foundation where we said, okay, this is how smart animals are. And, you know, that kept being challenged. Each generation kind of even challenged 
Pavlov. Sure. You know, when the bell was wrong, does it anticipate food or is it acting as if food's present? In a long time, the belief is acting as if food is present. Well, they've done research with other animals doing the same kind of conditions, and it's more of an anticipatory uh, behavior or impulse that occurs more so than acting as if something's there, which is fine. It doesn't. It's not exactly. a huge thing, but but it 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 flipped the script. So people were, you know, I guess shocked by it because yeah. they've been believing in one thing for so long. So science is all about challenge. Yeah, and I guess you say it's not a big thing, but I know in market training when we talk about the dog is really working more for the anticipation of the reward than the reward. Right, yeah. There's a great example of how science. You know, has been has has moved forward, and uh, you and I both know that the results of understanding that the dog's working for anticipation more so than whatever the reward is has you know paid us dividends quite a bit. You know, when we're together and when we're other dogs are oh, yeah. separate. So, the dopamine in the brain is at its highest level during anticipation. Exactly. So, so with that, um, what's the next step uh, with with some of these studies? You got Duke going on, and I think there's some other stuff going on. So, yeah. So, you know, working with Duke, you know, that was the canine cognition side of it. Well, that bled into uh, through one of the conferences I went to. I met Dr. Nathan Hall, who also works in cognition, or he did for a period of time at University of Florida, and and, and met Brian and things like that. Well, now he is the professor at the Canine Olfaction Laboratory at Texas Tech. So on, uh, I've made friends with him, gone to Texas Tech, and then more recently on, on my podcast, the Canines Talking Sense podcast, the, uh, he got in there and, and explained a lot of some really cool things that came into odor. And one of the, I guess, big beliefs we've always had in, as an industry, and it's, this part is true, yes, when a dog smells, let's say, a stew, it smells all the individual components of the stew, the carrot, the broth, and so on and so forth. So the industry is always, or there's been a, a large sector of our industry in detection dogs that says, okay, well, that's the case. We will stick all of our odors together, train the dog, or do our initial imprinting and all odors together, and then we separate them out afterwards. What we are learning on the science side of that is, hey, no matter what, when you're doing this, one odor is going to be more prominent than the other odors. That's just science. That's chemistry. No matter what, if you stuck things together, yeah. let's just say, for example, when you're making a cookie, you put the chocolate chips and these other things in there and all that kind of stuff, and you just put a little drop of vanilla in there. That little bit of vanilla will stand out to you. Sure. Even though it's a small, small portion of that cookie, that stands out. So same thing happens to a dog. So when they have these items all together, one is going to stand out more prominently. So when you're rewarding you are creating a psychological preference to one odor, which was the strongest one, and over the others. So more and more research is, is done because now what we also see is when you put things together, sometimes if you put A and B together, it doesn't mean you get A and B. Yep. You may get A, B together, you may get Q. And you didn't know that because let's say in narcotics, there's cutting agents. Cutting agents may react violently to, with each other on a chemical level and put off a whole nother smell, which could be the most prominent smell. So I think we can all admit in our detection world in, in law enforcement, many agencies don't get the best of training aids to work with to begin with. Sure. So, so we have to, as an industry now, let science keep doing what it's doing and get that information so that way, again, we can follow a best practices model like, like you said earlier, we're not saying these other things are, are bad or let's say don't work because they do work. But what we're saying is, hey, 
Have you noticed when your dog comes into a room, it may come up to an odor and walk off that odor and go check someplace else? Well, as we're learning, that might be because, yeah, I know that odor, but where's my favorite odor in this room? Or where's that odor I've created that psychological preference to? Okay, I don't see it anywhere. Let me come back over to this one. And that, that so, could directly tie into that anticipation. I anticipated finding yeah, this odor, the, and I like that odor, so I'll keep looking for my favorite thing correct. here. So. Correct. So in the in the explosive side of let, things, let me, I'm sorry, let, I don't mean to interrupt word. you, but one, while we're on that point, though, um, is science telling us, and I don't know the answer to this. We haven't, you and I haven't discussed this, so I'm learning here too. If when you when you break it back down and you introduce odors one at a time, uh, I guess the top of my head, I might still think well, the dog still might like vanilla more than chocolate chip and the cookie, using that as an example even if you introduce them individually. So then when he's got both odors imprinted in him, is he still going to favor one odor over the other in some instances? So your question is a good question. What what science has shown us so far is imprinting one odor at a time, you are giving each odor the same level of value when you, exactly, when you reinforce, when you give reward, you're giving each odor the same high value. When all odors are combined, one odor that stands out gets the most the dog associates through that reinforcement. Oh, this is the one that's prominent. I like this one the best, even though these other ones are there. But one at a time, each odor by itself has an equal level of or high value of reinforcement. So, and I'll just say, in my own personal experience, I used to do four and ones, and then I just switched, mm-hmm. especially the marker, and just do them one at a time. I don't remember um, really having the discussion. But I do know that in the years past, there's been times where either dogs I've helped train or people I've helped. I know, like all of us, at, have had dogs where we would say things like, well, his favorite odor is Matt, mm-hmm. or his favorite odor is this, or he always yeah. has trouble with this odor. So yeah. I think what you're describing is a pretty simple way of maybe heading that off by simply uh, imprinting right. each odor one at a time until they're proficient in each odor. Correct. And, and what is found out, like I said, I've done the cocktail method myself. I did it for years. And I, I, I saw the same things that you brought up. And I said to myself, okay, is there a better way of doing this? And obviously through time, I've learned this through the science aspect of it. And the more and more research that keeps coming out from this keeps validating that. that sure. To have a good, clear picture of the target odor, do one target at a time. And what the argument is when you do the cocktail, they're like, oh, well, I've done them all at once. And then I separate them out and they still learn. You're, you're right. They do. But you've created yourself an extra step. By separating them out. Because you still, yeah. still have to separate them out. Yep. So, and then on top of that, you just, like I said, the, the inherent thing that happens is that psychological preference to one over the others because you put them all together. Doesn't mean they don't learn it. Doesn't yeah. mean, but you've created A, an extra step, and two, you've done a... Uh, unknown preference of one over others. Yep. That's, that's a uh, really fascinating stuff. So now you've also, you've been working with Texas tech. What There's some other stuff going on. What's, what's another stuff? Yeah. Here? They've done some really cool stuff with uh, threshold levels right now. They've just finished a project that uh, they had down to parts per trillion with some of the dogs. And what they could see was, you know, the methodology of, okay, my question was, what's better to train? Start off with small odors or start off with big odors? And hands down, start off on a stronger amount of odor. That way it's very salient to the dog. They can tell, oh, this is something here. Um, and then reinforce and then work your way down. 
if you start off too low, you create the ability to have potential errors where something else may smell stronger, but yet you can't say for sure which is, was it your target odor that the dog was really smelling or something else? Where if you make that target odor at the very beginning during imprinting a very profound amount of odor, the dog will then obviously respond to that, have a, as my friend calls it, an emotional response to that odor. And then you're reinforcing that emotion, that dog's reaction to it. And that's something that the dog can't lie to you on. It doesn't false. When it smells that, it reacts. That reaction happens. And, and obviously, when me and you have talked about before in other yeah. episodes, we mark that behavior. That marker is then followed by that high value reward. So the psychological connection of searching and locating target odor and then getting reinforcement is very strong. So on in that uh, type of science, do you think there'll be a, um, a way to reliably, and I know that, with um, currency dogs, they've built in uh, thresholds, but I don't. I haven't talked to anybody. Uh, you know, everybody's dealing with this uh, marijuana problem. You think maybe mm-hmm. they'll be able to build in a, like a one pound threshold for a marijuana a dog? I I believe I believe so. And what we uh, the hardest part, honestly, on the research side of it, is getting funding for projects sure. when it comes to narcotics. When it comes to explosives, they throw money at research, no problem. Uh, on the narcotic side, it's been harder to uh, to get that sure. funding for good research. However, the the scientists I get to work with um, kind of do it on their, you know, hey, I've got the time, I've got the machines, I've got the ability. Uh, they care very deeply. They work, at a, one of them works at a crime laboratory anyway, so they have their hands on narcotics. And the one thing that came out of this, you know, in regards to, you know, thresholds and stuff like this, but everybody train on each other's dope absolutely as much as possible or bomb you know, because, or whatever yes yeah, because that way no matter what whether your stuff and your the stuff that was given to you by dea or given to you by your agency seizures or what have you is we all know dope has been cut with any various number of different chemicals but what yours was cut with may be exactly. different than what your neighboring agency's cut with but at least the dog when it trains on yours mine and somebody else's there's always going to be that common chemical in the narcotic that we want the dog to find. So despite the static, for lack of a better term, all the other stuff we don't yeah. care about, the prominent chemical will always be the same in the cocaine, methyl, benzyl, yeah. well, I forget the whole word. But anyway, the dog will pick up on that. So despite the noise, it knows I'm looking for these things. If you only train on your stuff, you are holding yourself back from having a clear picture for your dog of what to look for or to be even better at what they are. You may yeah. think they're good. But they could be even better by just getting Absolutely. exposure to everybody else's uh, dope in your area. Absolutely. And I'll take that one step further. Like we train with a group of uh, uh, bomb dog handlers from all over our metro area. And and the training's good and the camaraderie's good and new ideas is good. But to me, the biggest value for all of us is is using each other's odors. And that could even go down to I'm uh, pretty careful with our odors and always wear gloves, do all that stuff. But in some form or fashion, our odors have been contaminated either by where they're stored, how they're stored, where they're at. And with that same, same uh, idea, I'm sure other people have done, you know, somehow contaminated their odors too. So at least my C4 is different than your C4 and different than another agencies and, and the commonality with, with whatever, with however we screwed them up, which, which is just an honest way of putting it. No, you, you at least least we screw them up differently. Yeah, well, no, you hit the nail on the head when it comes to storage. There's another episode I got coming up on my podcast where I'm talking to somebody that does research on how we store the odors and right and how, you know, you may have yours in pelican cases, somebody has them in, in uh, ammo cans, someone has them in some Tupperware containers and so forth. And there's a 
the military has now adopted a best practices, or it's going to be the only way that they do it, uh, for storage, which is going to be your the substances contained within a glass jar, which is then uh, stored in uh, pelican cases and then separated and stored in a bigger one. And there's more to that. I'm just I'm yeah, like giving yeah, you yeah. shoot across the top. Yeah. But um, what they what they basically said is, you know. At the end of the day, we all know we've stored, you know, dope comes in plastic bags that are sealed and so on and so forth. And if you've done your job as a good canine handler, you've proofed off plastic, the containers, the vessels that your narcotics are in. But no matter what, it can it absorbs the odors in which we store it in or the vessels. So whether it be Absolutely. a duck cloth bag or a nylon yeah. bag or the Pelican case foam or whatever these things are, some people have very good um, practices when they store their narcotics or explosives, other people kind of just throw it in a thing and off they go. So I highly suggest because of all those variables that exist, again, back to the other point we just brought up, train on each other's odors. No matter what it is, bomb, drug, bed bug, whatever you want to do, train on other people's stuff because it is abundantly clear through research that the dogs will definitely become used to uh, your training sense if that's all you work on. Absolutely. So on that uh, note, science is telling us that, which I, I don't think that's uh, quite as new as some of the other stuff, but always a good reminder. What else uh, What else is going on in the science world that you're, you're seeing right now? Because again, I think uh, as far as people who are involved in our industry of training police dogs, I don't know anybody else who's working with all the different universities to the extent you are. So you're kind of the conduit to the rest of us right now. No, I, like, I, I just kind of got lucky with, and, and I, I'll be honest with you, I didn't go into it looking to fall into this kind of science side of it. It was one of these things that you know, back in that story I just told you when I ran in, you know, I saw the episode on uh, TV and led me to Duke, uh, kind of stemmed from there. And now at this point, I'm happy to be, like you said, the conduit and put the information out, which is why every week on my social media, I put out those detector dog questions of the week. And I know they're controversial. I want to sure. challenge what the perceptions have been for so many years that people, you know, we've all had these perception or these ideas or whatever it is, but we had no, we didn't do it based on fact. We just always kind of done it because that's the way the trainer in front of us told us was the best way to do and, it. And we had success with it too. Correct. Yeah. We saw successes and we saw things, but uh, no one really challenged the status quo. So that science now, like we've been talking about, has come into this world the stat, and the science is like, hold on a second. Here's what we're seeing. Some of it is validated. And some of it is like you might need to or you very much should change something. So when it comes to that, like we talked about the cognition, paying attention to how smart your dog is, you know, I'll give you a side example still in the cognition thing. We talked about persistence, a dog who is very persistent for its toy, right? Persistence can also be a hindrance. So in an example, we have a box with a little lever on it and you can put food or a toy or whatever into it. And every time the dog puts, pushes that lever down, the toy or food comes out. Well, a dog who's highly persistent will keep doing that. But when you remove the toy or food out of there, how long will they keep doing it? So your smarter dogs will typically, after X amount of reps of doing it, realize nothing's happening. They go try something different. The dogs that are extremely persistent just keep doing it, even though there's nothing coming out anymore. They just keep doing it. There's no reason. They just say, okay, well, I'm going to keep trying. So that shows mental inflexibility we want you know because not everything's going sure. to be the same way so we want a dog who can be mentally flexible go okay this didn't work 
So think about this. A handler who is persistent going, well, I saw your change of behavior. Let's go back to it. Let's go back to it. Let's go back to it. A dog who's equally persistent. Now you've got the blind leading the blind. Or you have that dog who's mentally flexible going, nope, no matter what you're doing, I need to go someplace else because there's nothing here. So that's, that's, that was a really cool thing on the cognition side that bled into going into where I've saw stuff with, because the same experiments were done with Texas Tech. And then that led to the odor side of things too. So what's coming up now, um, they'll be actually at our facility this summer doing a couple different uh, research projects. We're going to do some more research on certain types of odor projects with working dogs, not just uh, you know, some of the comments I get is, oh sure. yeah, those are just pound puppies that they've yeah. rescued and they do research on that. It's a controlled environment and so forth. You know, my argument to that, back to the odor, you know, combination thing, well, that's odor. Odor is odor. That's science. That has nothing to do with a dog. But you're right. There are definitely things that we need to see on the working dog side of it. So we'll be doing that. The other cool thing is, uh, it's another controversial topic, but handler bias. You know, how much sure. do we walk into a search or an area uh, with a expectation or a thought or an idea, um, and how much does that affect our dogs? So that's one of the big projects that we're actually doing this summer. Sure, I did an exercise recently on exactly the opposite, where we've seen the study where if the handler believes something there, they will often, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, inadvertently or uh, induce a, a response. In a training environment uh, a few weeks ago, I, I had a bag at sixteen six dynamite. In the bag, I had it in there for four or five days, so the bag was thoroughly soaked with odor. Mm-hmm. I put the bag in a school, and at the beginning of the scenario, I told them we're going to search the school, blah, blah, blah. And I said, hey, by the way, um, one of the dogs hit on this bag for some reason, but we searched it. There's nothing in it. So just out of curiosity, run your dog by that, but it's empty. It's, I guarantee it's empty. Mm-hmm. And so I, I set it up backwards, and it was just kind of cool to see a few guys, they walked by, let their dog hit it, and stood back and said, well, the dog's hitting it. And some other guys, nobody yanked him off it, but it was exactly the opposite. Yeah. Their belief was, I told them it was empty, so they're going to walk through it. So sure. I think all of those tests are, are valuable, and, and the handlers that I ran through that were appreciative of just seeing some did good, some didn't, and uh, you know either reaffirmed that they're doing the right thing, or you know let's let's think about what you're doing. Absolutely. So and, and that was just kind of came from you know like some of the stuff you and I did in Reno. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like pushing that the envelope that way. I would say here that um, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't kind of just talk about the mindset of the scientists you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. They're just scientists. They don't, you know, pardon the pun, but they don't have a dog in the fight here. Mm-hmm. So the information that they glean and they learn, they'll publish it like any scientist. And clearly, I'm sure that the people who want to, especially the people who want to go against drug dogs, are going to be paying attention to this. Sure. So for the people who are listening, if you're still not convinced um, of this, I can't imagine a world where the defense attorneys that, that want to go against you aren't going to at least have a, a basic knowledge of some of the science that's coming out because it's going to be published and you know easy to find. So hopefully, even if you don't want to change your training, hopefully you'll at least understand this stuff is going on out there. That was my purpose bringing camera on today, just to kind of hit the tip of the iceberg of, of talking about all the different uh, ways people are looking at, at dogs, not just police dogs, but all dogs and dogs training and, and understand there's some great ways that, that we can improve our profession. And also just to, to, to know, at least understand it's out there, be ready to um, answer questions like that if you face them in a deposition or in court. So. Yeah, just to piggyback what you just said, 
So at the Duke Canine Cognition Center, just one block away is Duke Law. So Duke Law School is walking distance from the Canine Cognition Center. Same at now out at uh, Texas Tech, Nathan Hall. Uh, like you said, you know he's not a um, uh, he doesn't have a working dog kind of thing. But luckily enough, he's a dog guy. He's kind of like um, you know you can mention Scott Clappenbach being a dog guy. No, Scott yeah. handles a dog professionally, but uh, Doctor Hall actually is a good trainer, a really good trainer. I've watched him work, and he has a good feeling. So he's looking at things from our point of view when he because he comes into it going, okay, I you know. He may have his own thoughts how this will go, especially from a trainer's point of view. And then all of a sudden, sure. the research shows him something totally different. So, um, you know, and, and you and I can go into the uh, in the future, go into one of the other conversations I had with him regarding pseudo versus real. And there's some good stuff that comes out from that. But at the end of the day, all this stuff is is what you talked about. It's guiding us to a best practices model, and sure. you can either accept it and embrace it and make some changes if you need to make some changes or you don't and the industry will start holding you accountable because if a majority of the industry is saying okay yep we see these things these things it has it has data it can be validated we should probably make these changes and you choose not to then honestly at that point you have to suffer the consequences however it comes out but at the sure. end of the day being open minded going okay yep Science is telling us something different than what I've believed for years. But it, it was the same thing on my conversation. I challenged those who said, well, I like the 4 one I'm like, okay, fine. But provide me with the data and the science that proves 4 one is better than doing one odor at a time. And of course, crickets, you know, because there isn't any. Yeah. So, yeah. so with that said, all, all me and yours goal, like I said, through this conversation is to challenge uh, trainers and handlers to go out there and learn the why. And then when you hear the why, or you hear somebody give you a reason, see if you can have the data behind it that validates that point. If it's just because, that's not good enough. You, you need to seek exactly. out where the information comes from and can that information be validated. Exactly. And at least be able to address uh, you know, that, that you've heard of it. You know, Be, be a professional. So mm -hmm. even if you're not using it, you can say, I understand it, but you know we're successful in this manner, and mm -hmm. we've always been successful. And you have the, de the records to prove it, so you'll be fine. But I just wanted to give everybody kind of a an overview of, of a lot of exciting stuff. To me, I don't resist it at all. I like it. I yeah. think it's fun. It's just a way to keep uh, keep pushing ourselves and pushing our profession. So Absolutely. I appreciate you coming on today, and I appreciate um, you know everything you're doing there. And we're going to keep uh, hitting you up here for this program sure. because, like I said, you're the you're the conduit right now for a lot of this information. Um, if you guys like this type of uh, discussion and like this class and you want to meet Cameron, he'll be at HITS in Chicago this year, uh, August 13th. We'll have uh, lots of instructors there. Cameron and I will be teaching a marker uh, class together where we'll discuss uh, detection uh, dog marker training. Plus, you'll have an opportunity to hang out, talk to Cameron, and uh, maybe uh, pick his mind on all these different subjects along with uh, a host of other instructors. So hopefully uh, we'll see some of you people at HITS. And uh, Cameron, uh, tell us uh, again where we can reach you right now. Yeah, so those that want to continue to geek out on some of this cool canine science stuff can go check out Canine's Talking Sense podcast. And that's K, the number nine, small s, talking, and it's sense like the odor. So S-C-E-N-T-S -E podcast, or you look up my name and you can find it that way. Or just go to the website, 
www.silverstatek9.com. That pretty much is the easy way to uh, see what's going on at our training and research facility. And then lastly, through my email, which is just ford at silverstatek9.com. That sounds good. So thanks again for jumping on here. And uh, uh, we'll definitely be doing some follow-ups. For sure, the uh, pseudo versus real will probably be the next show you'll hear from us uh, coming out because I know there's a lot of controversy there. um, And and I'd like to uh, hear what science is saying as as well as, you know, we can share some personal experience Mm -hmm. with both uh, both of them. So thanks, Cameron. And we will talk to you again real soon. Sounds good. Thank you. HITS Radio is brought to you by the professionals at HITS Training and Consulting. Don't miss out on the world's largest law enforcement canine training conference. Coming to the McCormick Center in Chicago, Illinois this August, HITS has the most diverse class schedule to fit your training needs. And with over 100 vendors, you'll find everything you need to gear up for your next shift. Register today and save at www.hitscanine.net.